Hello, and welcome to Climate Fix Podcast. Here we dive into evidence-based solutions to climate change and various other pressing environmental issues. This podcast is created by Americans for Nuclear Energy, a pro-nuclear environmental organization. We take no money from industry or special interest groups. All donations are from individuals like you, interested in a grassroots scientific movement to solve the world's most pressing scientific problem, global climate change. We hope you approach these ideas with humanism and an open mind. Our mission statement is as follows. Nuclear energy is safe, cheap, plentiful, clean, and efficient. It has the capability to stop and reverse climate change while addressing the ever-growing demand for electricity globally. We strive to educate American citizens about this technology and to dispel misconceptions with facts. We firmly believe that both human civilization and industrialism can easily coexist with a healthy environment. Join us in helping to plan a prescription for a feverish planet, or as we like to say, a climate fix. This is your host, Phil Orr. And this is your co-host, Colby Kirk. This episode is entitled Legalizing Nuclear Power. We are thrilled to be able to talk to energy sustainability expert, Dr. Ben Hurd, who is one of the leading pro-nuclear voices in Australia. The country is one of the dirtiest grids in the developed world and also has a ban on the use of nuclear power. We discussed their nuclear power ban and how it came into existence. Ben is vocally opposed to the ban and finds it absolutely absurd for climate reasons. Through his activism and his organization, Bright New World, he is looking to bring about political change surrounding acceptance of the technology. Nuclear power is not banned in the United States, but its industry is in dire straits with many imminent nuclear power plant closures. It is regulated to death and is still politically charged with lots of negative perceptions. For all intents and purposes, it might as well be illegal in America. Ben and his work can offer us insight into our strategy to get nuclear back on track here in the States. We talk about political strategy to attain support for clean fission energy, what Australia should do, and advice for nuclear advocacy in America in order to make it cool again. We also dive into details of Australia's dirty energy problems and its status as the world's largest exporter of coal. Additionally, we talk about the limits of wind and solar to decarbonize the Australian continent. Here's a bit of background on Ben. Dr. Ben Hurd is recognized as a leading voice for the use of nuclear technologies to address our most pressing global challenges. It certainly didn't start that way, though. Previously in his career, he was a member of various environmental NGOs and shared their basic objection to nuclear technologies. After completing a master's in sustainability, he started working on major projects concerning climate change. However, he started to fear that there was just no solution available to match the scale of the problems at hand. Instead of continuing his objection to nuclear technology, he kept quiet about it for a few years and did some learning. That was the start of his journey of writing, presenting, advocating, and learning more about how we can reinvent the future using all of our knowledge and ingenuity. Ben announced his changed position on nuclear technologies in 2010 and has since traveled the world as an invited speaker to share that experience and speak to audiences both within and outside the nuclear industry. 
to consider how we can best tackle climate change and its interrelated challenges, including changing our approach to nuclear technologies. He founded Bright New World in 2016 to provide a new organization for people who want pragmatic, compassionate, and science-based environmentalism, in particular, that which values the role of nuclear technologies. Ben received his PhD from the University of Adelaide in 2018, where he examined clean energy supply. During this time, he published the highly cited paper, Burden of Proof, a comprehensive review of the feasibility of 100% renewable electricity systems. He has presented his research findings at conferences in Australia and around the world. Later in 2018, Ben Hurd was featured on 60 Minutes Australia. In an episode about nuclear power, he and the show's host received unprecedented access to the damaged Fukushima reactors in order to really convey the actual extent of the accident and explain the incredible overall safety of the technology. On air, he also described nuclear's potential to solve climate change and the energy dilemma that so many countries are facing. Ben currently works in the private sector on energy and asset performance projects and is a board member of Bright New World. It's amazing that Ben had such a transformation to become pro-nuclear after he took time to educate himself about it. He's quite accomplished. I'm excited to talk to Ben today because he is on the front lines in Australia advocating for nuclear against an effective legal ban on the technology. For a continent that provides a third of the world's uranium supplies, Australia has no nuclear power plants. Despite many green groups vocally pushing for renewables in response to climate change, the Australian grid remains dominated by fossil fuels. Nuclear power can be the optimal source of power to utilize Australia's resources and to decarbonize their electric supply. And I'm happy to finally be talking to Ben as I've been reading and citing a lot of his work. The Australian grid is fascinating for many reasons. It is roughly the size of the continental United States, yet has about a tenth of the population. It also has a very strong renewables-only ideology, which is dominating the energy debate. Burden of Proof was one of my favorite pieces authored by Ben, which goes over four basic requirements every energy policy roadmap should have, but are often lacking from 100% renewable roadmaps. Out of the 24 renewable-only roadmaps that were referenced in his study, none of them satisfied all four requirements. And Bright New World sounds like the most important climate organization in Australia could really learn from right now. Even though the U.S. and Australia are two very different countries, the nuclear movement in America can learn lots of strategies from organizations like them to advance social and political acceptance of the technology. I totally agree. Well, let's get to it. Here's our discussion with Dr. Ben Hurd. Thank you so much for coming on, Ben. Uh, it's a real pleasure to be here, Phil. Uh, it's good to finally make your acquaintance after a lot of years on the internet. Yep, we, uh, we're on, on Twitter a lot, so it's good to finally interact with you yeah. voice to voice. So. Absolutely. Yep, it's terrific. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, Ben, uh, can you tell us a little, about, uh, little bit about yourself and your organization, Bright New World? Yeah, I'd be happy to. I've been um, involved in talking about nuclear power for actually 10 years to the day very soon. So uh, about 10 years ago, I, uh, after a few years of thinking very hard about the topic, I spoke up um, at an event that I planned in my home city of Adelaide to uh, say that I had changed my mind about nuclear power. And that was coming from the perspective of 
someone who'd uh, been through a master's in sustainability uh, had joined a, a climate change uh, related team at, a, at an engineering consultancy and so cared very, very deeply about that issue of climate change. Uh, but had sort of got myself to a position of serious concern that we, we weren't equipped to deal with that on the basis of the solutions that we were letting ourselves um, take seriously. So uh, on March the 8th in, in 2011, I uh, spoke at an event in Adelaide attended by about 80 to 100 people. Uh, and it was really, really strongly received and, and gave me a real spur that there must be something, something here that needs to be said. Now, interestingly, just a few days later, uh, was the East Japan earthquake and the consequent Fukushima um, nuclear accident. And so that obviously gave me a huge challenge right, right at the very beginning about what it is I just opened my mouth and said. So that's just an interesting factoid that that's coming up to 10 years now. Uh, so I, I spent um, several years uh, really blogging, actually, um, around a fairly successful blog called Decarbonize SA where I tried to, to popularise some of these ideas, particularly in the Australian context, but found myself uh, as much or, or more um, getting a degree of, of global following out of that. And then fast forward further and I was nearing the completion of a PhD and there were some political events here in uh, South Australia in particular. And uh, my friend who, who is now the general manager of Bright New World was really pressing me to say, you know, we need an organisation, you, know, you need an organisation because we've got to have more, more say in what's going on. Uh, and so that sort of really spurred the creation of a, of a new environmental NGO, Bright New World. Um, and it is a you know, proudly eco-modernist framed uh, organization that really wants to promote um, uh, a really optimistic vision of the future based on science and technology, humans coming together, you know, the removal of prejudices um, and, and coming together for, for solutions. And as I like to say, we are wholly eyes open about the nature of the problems, but we uh, have a conviction that, that the best way forward is to keep an assiduous focus on the good news, on the solutions and, and on what we can do. And so Bright New World's coming up on about three, maybe even four years old now, and I'm very proud of that. So even to survive in the space for a few years is a win, and we're looking forward to And you run this um, so as a part-time gig too, like along with your regular job, right? Yeah, look, I'm very pleased to say that um, uh, the general manager is, is Dane Eckerman, and he does uh, a lot of the operations, and I, sort of, I serve as chairperson and founder. And, yes, it is uh, an extracurricular for me that I do because – is the contribution that I can make that's very important. I work full time in a, in a systems engineering and technology company, so that is my that is my day job. Um, where there is you know some measure of alignment and crossover, is we do a lot of work in energy, but Bright New World is something that that happens uh, out of hours, um, but it's a really important part of my life. Cool, great. So, would you say Bright New World is like focused on advocating nuclear power? Yeah, it is. Um, but I also I really like what we've got in our constitution, which is an extremely well-formed um, set of objectives. And the objectives are framed as the ends, the ends that we want to achieve, which is uh, a stable climate, a world where humans can all achieve a, a measure of prosperity, where nature is returning and flourishing, where we are having a lighter impact on the planet. So it is very much focused on the outcomes we're seeking. The fact is, 
we understand nuclear technologies to have such a central role in achieving all of those outcomes. And as an NGO that is small, and so we need to be pretty targeted in what we commit our efforts to. And as an NGO that is, is based in a country where nuclear technologies are outright prohibited, it's, it's really sensible and straightforward that that's our area of focus at the moment because that is where we can have the most difference. Uh, if we were one more voice in some of those other issues presently, we might not move the needle all that much. So at present, by focusing on nuclear technologies, we find that we, we do make a difference. Yeah, I was, I was about to say you kind of have a tall order to um, promote nuclear power where it's constitutionally banned. Can you uh, give us maybe the history of that and what the effects have been of such a ban? Yeah, for sure. So the, the history of it is interesting. It goes back to, I think it was 1998 or 1999. And it actually is tied to the processes that were necessary and important for Australia to invest in, in a new research uh, and medical production reactor, which we now have, which is the Opal Reactor in Lucas Heights in Sydney at the Ansto campus, which was commissioned in about 2005. So if you move back before that, we had an older reactor which needed to be decommissioned, and so there was the, the need to, to tend for and build a new research reactor. Now, that also brought in a, a redevelopment of Australia's regulatory settings around nuclear technologies. And in that process, the um, opponents of nuclear power, I'll just use a shortcut, were keen to point out that the, the regulatory act that was going to govern the research reactor was not um, uh, by proxy giving regulatory powers to also introduce a nuclear power production sector in Australia, if you follow me. And so that was fundamentally written into the RPANS Act, which is the, the um, uh, regulatory act. It then got pretty much lifted up and put down again uh, in our environmental biodiversity and Conservation Act um, at a time where climate change was actually a pretty prevalent concern by 1998, you know, 99, but still not quite as prevalent as today. Um, Australia, you know, the government at the time, which actually was a conservative government, clearly decided that the cost was not too high to have that put in. And it, it went in really quietly and, and really sort of easily. There wasn't much of a fight about it at all. And since then, we've had a default prohibition on nuclear technologies in Australia. So it happened with a whimper, not a bang. And that's actually quite concerning, and I hope, I hope everyone sort of pays attention to that. You, you have to look at what's going on in these processes because, you know, to the second part of your question, Phil, the consequences of it are profound. Um, once something is locked out of uh, a jurisdiction, it's very difficult to come back from there. Um, we are sort of trying to build a constitution, a, a constituency out of thin air in Australia. You know, there is no incumbent sector. There, um, there are no stakeholders in Australia, communities, workers who are already benefiting from this. You know, there's no one standing to lose if it goes backwards. We're, we're just trying to create a, an understanding that there's a, a great amount to gain. And it's, it's so difficult. Um, because it, it, it gets used as an excuse for nuclear to be left out of all analyses. So all of the analyses being done in Australia 
it is either excluded because whichever institution just decides they can't be bothered and it's not worth it, or it's included, and as recently happened in a process called GenCost, it's included so badly um, with such a lack of rigour that we have just actually asked in this case, please exclude it. Um, you have presented, in this case, SMR nucleus so poorly as to set it back in the Australian conversation. Uh, so it is an enormous struggle um, and the only, you know, um, uh, one of, one of the, the bright points on this is that, you know, sadly the Australian energy environment is becoming uh, more and more dysfunctional over time and, and pressure is mounting. So I feel there is a certain inevitability about these things changing, uh, but it has been very, very costly, very, very costly. For sure. And the electric grids in parts of Australia are very coal intensive. So it was, this is a consequence of maybe potentially science denial or science illiteracy in a government policy that has very intense consequences. It has profound consequences. And when we say um, coal dependent, you know, it is among the most coal dependent grids in the entire world. Uh, Poland would be perhaps one of the only uh, comparable grids, grids and perhaps a, a couple of locations in the United States. And so in terms of a country that is potentially exposed now to accelerating action on climate change, we've left ourselves in a, an unwise position. So if you go back to the 1998-1999, you had a Conservative government that certainly was much less inclined to believe that taking climate change action seriously was a strong imperative. Um, aided and abetted by an anti-nuclear faction that always puts anti-nuclear first and, and climate change second. So it's actually those two forces coming together with um, a left of centre Labor Party that also had a bit of an anti-nuclear bent and didn't yet care very much, uh, and all of a sudden that was locked out. So the position that's left us is that we've got probably fifteen to 20,000 megawatts of coal that are probably going to need to be retired from our major grid in the next 15 to 20 years. And those retirements might be brought forward. And despite the fact that we've got more than enough coal, there's, there's no shortage of the stuff here in Australia. It is virtually implausible that any bank is going to finance a new coal-fired power station in a developed country like Australia from this point forward. And that leaves Australia with a, a really, really big transition challenge in, in the next 15 to 20 years. So it sounds like you have a, a technical demand uh, for an alternative to coal for the grid and also this tall legal order with you know the barriers you just mentioned. So how, how would you summarize sort of like a hopeful future pathway of legalizing nuclear energy and incorporating it into the Australian power grid? Yeah, great question, Colby. I, I think that I've always viewed these matters as um, you, you need to sort of hit the right equilibrium state of um, pain and opportunity, to be honest. Um, that doesn't necessarily sound as optimistic as you might be looking for, but, but bear with me. We are going through a real struggle here in Australia as we try to work through what the solutions to that are going to be. There is a strong, um, at the moment, quite dominant narrative that there can be a solution to that based on variable renewable energy plus a profound expansion in the transmission network across Australia. I think that's currently starting to become a bit of a logjam. 
and is going to experience real, real difficulties in implementation from here. So what I'm saying is I think that the difficulty we're going to experience is, is going to keep creeping up. What we really need and what I do think is going to happen next is that the barriers to entry for a fit-for-purpose nuclear solution are going to start coming down. So I see that over the next five years we are going to be seeing more really demonstrable progress with some very important technologies, particularly in the form of small modular reactors, that are going to be very, very difficult for the Australian context to ignore. So where we see things that are 300 megawatts and less will connect really nicely in the Australian grid, which would actually struggle to, to put on 1,000 megawatt, 1,200, 1,600 megawatt units. It's not really built for that. But as we see those smaller reactors reaching commercial maturity and then deployment, they are such a neat fit that I think we will get to a position where those who um, have the position, uh, have the ability to make these decisions, will see that there is a technology development pathway that can happen pretty quickly um, following through the political change. Uh, and therefore, spending that political capital will, will be worth it because there will be action that will help come to those solutions. So I'm really saying we need to, to get the right solutions on the table, solutions that people in Australia can really see and believe in and get on board with. That's going to have to combine with probably just a bit more discomfort in the um, political and industrial um, uh, sphere here in Australia. But we don't have the solutions. And then I feel that change actually can and will happen pretty swiftly. Because to, to remind you, we are already a nuclear country. We, we mine and export uranium. We have an excellent world-class um, research and medical isotopes production reactor. We have a nuclear science and technology organisation. We have a regulator and we have a non-proliferation uh, non and safeguards office, which is extremely well regarded. So we have plenty of underlying infrastructure to do this. So I think that um, in the course of the next few years, we're going to reach a tipping point and then we will move pretty affirmatively pretty quickly, I feel. It would be an interesting you know, case study in how a country that hasn't adopted nuclear power could adopt it in a 21st century way, you know? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And I, I think that's really, really exciting. And I, you know, when I get the opportunity, I like to ask Australian stakeholders to think in those terms. You know, we have, um, for all of the crisis that we're seeing to be heading into, we have an advantage here, which is something of a blank slate in terms of how we want to do nuclear power. And that's a terrific question to be able to ask, actually. You know, in 2021, it's quite good to be able to ask that question. You know, if you hadn't done nuclear power yet, if you didn't have any of the legacy concerns uh, from the 40s, 50s and 60s about the nuclear power industry, what would you do? How would you design it in terms of regulation? How would you design it in terms of licensing, siting, design, um, waste management and technology? How would you develop it in terms of community engagement? This is actually really, really exciting. And I think Australia could do that really well uh, if it took it with both hands. It's the sort of thing Australia could, could surprise people on and do very, very well. And I think that would be brilliant. Um, we would potentially, um, you know, I would love to see us become a part, uh, part of the research and development and commercialization effort for some of these newest technologies as part of our road forward. I think that would be very, very exciting. So, yeah, you know, watch that space and let's see what happens. Because I, I do think that while I am absolutely supportive of large nuclear technologies um, and they should be permitted here in Australia, I do think it's a fair call to say if you were to use the expression fit for purpose, 
that 1,000 megawatt plus nuclear reactors are less fit for purpose than the small modular reactors in the pipeline. So I, I think from a um, pragmatic uh, project management engineering perspective, that's likely the direction we're going to take. And so the ability to focus that uh, on that direction, I, I think, is a really exciting one. Yeah, I, I, I agree. It's uh, you know some sometimes a very large uh, facility is a good thing, but um, you know fit for purpose is, is a pretty good way to describe the role of SMRs and and how they can kind of lead the way in, in getting established on the Australian grid? Yeah, I think so. I mean, we're you know, economically, we're looking at a country with um, very slow to sort of negligible uh, growth in demand for electricity, for example. So that drive is not there. And, and we're reasonably confident that even with population growth, that's likely to continue for a range of technology reasons. So it might stay around about where it is presently. And then... When you look at Australia, um, we've got about 25 million people. A lot of them are connected to the same electricity grid, the national electricity market uh, of the, the eastern states, South Australia and Tasmania. Um, and that grid is incredibly stretched uh, in terms of its geography. So it's, it's one of the longest and thinnest grids in the entire world. Yeah, I mean, Australia has roughly the same land area as the continental United States, yet one-tenth of the population, roughly, you know... <laughs> That's right. So, so what you end up with, we, we don't have a sort of meshed, crisscrossed grid in the manner of the European Union or many sections of the United States. It's, it's really a long and skinny grid. And on that entire grid, the, at present, the largest single generating unit is uh, 750 megawatts. Um, there is nothing larger than that connected to the, to the Australian grid. Almost all of the generating units are 300 megawatts and, and less. Um, they come together in some large nodes of power. So, you know, some of the, the power stations themselves are 2,000 to 1,500, 3,000 megawatts, but they're broken up into very small units. And part of the reason for that is you've got to manage your electrical grid to be able to lose its largest single unit and recover from it. And when you have a longer grid that is less meshed, the, that unit size uh, needs to be smaller. And so, you know, we could reinforce, we could do work to reinforce our grid and um, and uh, make it more able to accommodate those large sizes for sure. Um, uh, that's where I come back to that expression: fit for purpose. It is just such a neat fit if we're able to have uh, nuclear reactors that are uh, at that smaller size. Um, they will go on with no problem at all. Right. So your grid is definitely quite a bit different from ours, and in our country, it's not illegal, but. Honestly, it's regulated near death, and it seems like it's carbon-free electricity is not valued. What advice do you think you could give us from your effort in Australia to save nuclear energy in the United States? Because we're seeing plants closing right and left. Yeah, um, I'm, glad, I'm glad you raised it. And I think what you said in the question there at least shows me that there has been some change in that you know, people are saying our carbon-free electricity isn't valued. Now, when I, one of the last times I was in the United States, around about 2015, I think I spoke at, um, oh, look, I think it was the largest sort of American nuclear industry conference or so, um, and, and we were asked some questions about this, and I sort of asked people to imagine, you know, what would we think if nuclear power were invented today? If we'd never invented it before, what would we think of it? And in effect, the world got nuclear power a little before we kind of needed it. And so it's slipped through there unvalued. And I'm pleased to see that there has been a push, the most common sense imaginable policy push to say, if we are making clean 
energy. It needs to be valued in, in the market appropriately. Yeah, that's that's absolutely straightforward. As far as making that that save in the United States goes, um, you've got to realize that um, every win or loss matters. You know, there's no standing still in this situation as far as I'm concerned. If, if you're not moving forward, you're probably moving backwards. And so you've really got to go after each and every, each and every um, issue that is on the table and stand up for it. Uh, because there are forces that are that are going to want to push it back, and I would really caution the American nuclear um, community strongly against any idea that um, because it is so reliable, because it does so much of the the work already, because there are so many people employed, that ultimately it's too important to fail, and it will be okay. I I really urge you to appreciate that that's not true. We have got policy examples from all over the world, not just Australia, where poor policy is formed that does a country real damage. And there are stakeholders in the United States who will not hesitate to push you in the direction of that policy and will not hesitate to see all of that pain inflicted on the American energy sector. So nuclear is not immune to that in the United States. It has to be standing up and making its case all the time all the time. And that is changing a bit, but again, not, not as quickly as I would like. And, you know, again, I would go back to this conference in 2015 and, and, and watching uh, a very senior member of that conference address the entire conference and talk about headwinds that the industry in America was facing some headwinds. And I was really shocked, a little bit appalled. Uh, I was thinking to myself, no, these aren't headwinds. Your industry's on fire you are going to be incurring huge losses in the next few years and you're kind of downplaying it to your own people. Uh, so take it really, really seriously um, is the advice I've got. You know, stand up for um, the industry and what it does and make sure people know that you're there at all times because uh, you can be shut down. <laughs> Just no doubt about that. You can be shut down. And I think the industry in the United States has always been just too quiet. And I think, you know, like you say, just constantly make your voice heard. I honestly think our nuclear industry needs to be a little bit more on the offensive instead of the defensive. I agree. I've um, just, <laughs> I've, been on, I've been on Twitter this morning, a, a little bit, a little bit pissy, to be honest, at a, at a new article that's been published in Nature, um, which is taking a take, yeah, I'm taking a little bit of a lecturing tone to the global industry about, about doing things right. Um, and, and I think that, that while there are a couple of good messages in that article, it's taking the paradigm back way, way, way too far to putting the nuclear industry back on a thoroughly apologetic footing. Um, and, and that for me is not the answer. Um, there are times absolutely to be humble. You need to do your consultation appropriately. You need to communicate professionally. Um, but apologizing for existing is not the way forward. Um, and you can't slip under the radar on this issue. You, you've got to be out and proud about what, you're, uh, what the industry is and what it does uh, and making the case at all times. Yeah, there seemed to have been this philosophy where if you just you know, do the job and, and stay quiet, hopefully the anti-nukes won't notice you and they'll leave you alone, but that, that has not turned out to be an effective strategy. And I remember 
<laughs> I remember when I first got involved with nuclear advocacy back in around, I'd say 2015, uh, there was a shareable image that said, you know, in, for the United States, uh, anti-nuclear hit list. And it was like a, a about 10 nuclear plants on this list. And over the years, just one by one, they've been getting crossed out. And, you know, it's really scary because we are losing plants. And that's a, a horrible uh, and, and results in very harmful consequences for uh, the grid, for the future, for uh, the people whose livelihoods depended on those plants. So... Um, I, I agree. We really do need to be louder about this. Yeah, and I mean, perhaps the only positive to come out of the, those um, losses in recent years is the accumulation of evidence of what the results of that is. And that is a, the perverse positive that's come out of that is there is a lot more to point at. Uh, and you, know, you can see the, um, the way that has actually helped fold a number of other stakeholders into the call for, hang on, we we cannot surely be doing this. You know, that's actually brought a lot more people into that argument. And that's, that's a really, really positive thing. Um, but, but do not underestimate it. I mean, from, from the other, from the other angle, uh, in Australia, they've, uh, the anti-nuclear forces have had the, the playing field all of themselves for a very, very long time. And, you know, that is one reason the, the bright new world, which has stood on the shoulders of many other stakeholders, by the way, um, has been able to make such a difference is because suddenly we've injected really serious competition into that um, conversation and we've injected really serious cons um, competition into the consultation processes. Um, and they're not used to that and they're, they're not used to having that space uh, so heavily contested. Um, but, yeah, be, you know, you've, got to be, you've got to be open-eyed about, about what's going on here. Um, I am saddened to say, deeply saddened to say that, we see again and again so many organisations purporting to be concerned about the environment um, put anti-nuclear first and everything else a very, very distant second. Uh, and, and that is, that is sadly, sadly the truth. Um, recent comments from the Union of Concerned Scientists about the closure of Diablo Canyon just really drove that home. Um, that is the nature of the, of the opposition and you've, you've got to get good at it. You know, you've got, you've got to take that, um, contest out to where it's being fought. You, you can't fight it from behind your desk. Yeah, I agree. And I mean, it, it's it's interesting you mentioned how there's such a, a dominance of the anti-nuclear narrative in Australia, considering that Australia is one of the richest deposits of uranium in the world. I think I think Australia is something like one third of the world's uranium supply. Um, yes. <laughs> and, and so you have a, a quite a coal dominated grid. And, um, you know, I guess one transitional thing that Australia could do is not only, you know, transition its own grid to uranium, but maybe like become sort of a uranium basket for the rest of the world. If there is going to be this global energy transition towards nuclear, uh, do, you, right. do you think that would be a workable solution for a future th a thriving economy? Well, I think it's a partial one. The, you know, the nature of the, the situation here is that we've had the luxury of such um, plentiful energy in Australia for a really long time of all sorts. Uh, it means that it's been pretty easy to, to have an anti-nuclear culture because we've never actually needed nuclear power. So that's very, very simple. Um, you know, we can be coal dependent and anti-nuclear all at the same time and no one gets too upset, <laughs> right? Easy. <laughs> right. Um, moving forward, what happens next? Yeah, that's a, that's a really, really different question. And 
the the hypocrisy that you're alluding to is, is prominent, right? So we're the third largest exporter of, of uranium. Um, we have the world's largest deposits, and yet we uh, we tell ourselves that, that this technology isn't to be used. But that obviously can't can't stand forever. Our coal exports are enormous in energy, uh, and they're going to some really really uh, some parts of the world that, that really really need the energy and don't necessarily have substitutes yet. But some that do, you know, including um, Japan and Taiwan. Well, you know, what does the Australian anti-nuclear set have to say about that? The fact is one of the quickest pathways out of that would be to grow nuclear power in other parts of the world. So we absolutely can be a bigger supplier of uranium to the world's global market. Uh, it's, a, I guess, one of the quirks, you know, as you guys would know, you know, a, a pellet of uh, uranium fuel is worth about a metric tonne of coal in energetic terms. <laughs> And so as it happens, uranium fuel is really good value as a mineral export in terms of the energy you're getting. So we're not going to earn as much from exporting uranium as we currently earn from coal simply because uranium is just such a vastly better fuel. It's just a vastly better fuel, right? Uh, we have uh, – there is a line – at any one time, there is a line of boats off the east coast of Australia near Newcastle waiting to load with coal and go to Asia. That's the Oh, yeah. You, you fly into Newcastle and you'll see them lined up. Um, they're waiting to pick up Australian black coal and take it, take it out of the country. So we're not going to replace that in, in um, dollar value terms with uranium, but we can certainly replace it in energy terms with uranium and feel really, really good about the um, positive thing that we're doing for climate yeah, change and doing that. Yeah, that would be a transition to be very proud of. Um, what, sorry, go on. Oh, sorry. You see in the, in the news people are talking about you know, how there is so much renewable energy and climate progress in Australia when they're the largest exporter of coal in the world, if I'm not mistaken. And it's almost like if, you know, if, if the country was could be serious about climate change, like what a, what a better fuel to export, but I know it wouldn't make as much money. No, that's right. I mean, coal... Coal and natural gas, uh, you know, our, our LNG exports are, are mm -hmm. huge as well. I mean, we are, we're the dealer, right? <laughs> we, we are the dealer when it comes to climate change. It's, it's Australia very much. We, we've got a case to answer here. So you know, how do we transition ourselves? And, and also, what is our future in a world that transitions? You know, this, is, this is a hard question that we're not properly asking yet. Better uranium export is definitely one answer. Another actually really plausible answer is that we become mm. um, a host for used nuclear fuel at its end of life. So, you know, you know, I absolutely, from a technology perspective, would love to see the entire world run on its own fleet of integral fast reactors and advanced reactor technology and everyone running nice little closed loop yeah. circles. Fine. But that is going to take a little while, right? Yeah. <laughs> Between now and then, the world needs a whole lot more nuclear that's going to be running on once through fuel cycles. Um, and there is the challenge of you know, what to do with using nuclear fuel. Now, we know how to do that um, technically and, and in engineering terms, that is, that is not a problem. But sociopolitically, that has been a very, very difficult thing to achieve. And if we look at, in particular, say, the Asia-Pacific and what we might hope that nuclear can achieve in penetration so as to deal with climate change, then we're talking about a lot of nuclear power plants in a lot of different countries in a region. And it does not seem like wisdom to expect every one of those countries to implement its own relatively small 
um, deep geological repository or some sort of um, above ground storage facility for that material, particularly given that many of those countries are geologically far less suited to doing that. Mm. Then you have Australia. We're sitting there in the heart of that region. We are um, the most geologically um, suitable place to potentially do that. We will have um, been the source of the raw material and we're an extremely politically stable and scientifically advanced country. If we were able to position ourselves as a country that either has a leasing arrangement for the uranium that we um, have mined, such that we track it and we take it back in its, in its final form, or simply some other subscription service for holding used nuclear fuel, either for ultimate disposal or for future recycling, I would consider that our choice. Um, that would be an incredibly valuable service into that Asian market, and Australia would profit from that hugely, and that actually would be large enough to substitute for a great deal of our fossil fuel exports. And essentially we'd be taking care of closing that loop and becoming not only the exporter of the clean energy but you know maybe the chief recycler uh, in the world. So I, I, we, I see that Australia could have a phenomenally positive role in transitioning the world beyond uh, fossil fuels. Our renewable um, resources can be a part of that, yeah, I do agree, but it is really diff difficult to compete with that pellet of uranium that's worth a metric ton of coal. You know, there's a, there's a lot more potential in there and I, th I think we've got to get after it. Right. And and I was going to kind of expand on the idea that we, I just hear it in the news all the time in renewable energy circles is South Australia is like a considered a poster child for renewable ener energy. And you always hear about this giant Tesla lithium ion battery. Uh, however, the energy prices in Australia are some of the highest in the developed world. Do you think that, you know, renewables will just make that even more expensive? So this is complex. So you, you're just going to have to bear with me and, and, and the, the listeners are just going to have to bear with me while I, while I break some of this down, Phil. Um, there, there are reasons to look at um, South Australia's renewable energy transition and, and give it some props. So it started in about 2003, which is when the first wind, wind turbine was, was built. Uh, and then in the last calendar year, we, we would have had about 50% of our power demand would have been from renewable energy sources. Uh, that's worth saying, okay, well, so, someone has done something right there. There's some more context needed, though. Um, in that national electricity market that I spoke of earlier, South Australia is one of the very smaller regions. So we're only about 1.6 million people or so. Okay. So we're connected to Victoria, uh, the neighbouring state, where the, the capital city, Melbourne itself, is, is about 4 million people. Um, and the rest of Victoria is, is much more heavily populated. And then to the north of Victoria, New South Wales, which is the most populous state, uh, Sydney, you know, over 4 million people and, and other quite large towns. So in the context of that um, interconnected grid, uh, South Australia is one of the very smaller regions. By going first, South Australia really capitalised on the existing reliability and margins that were in the national electricity market. So we were able to, for the listeners who don't know, I live in South Australia, we were able to um, mm. effectively use the rest of the national electricity market as our big battery. So we uh, export and import uh, power just about as required um, and we have been able to lean on the reliability margins of, of the rest of the market. So we had a real first mover advantage and we took it. 
so the, the trick in Australia is that it is going to be phenomenally more difficult, A, for South Australia to go from 50 to any further, 75, 80, 100%. Um, but more importantly, B, for the likes of New South Wales and Victoria to even get to 20, 30, 40, 50%. Because all of that wind and solar is correlated in South Australia, particularly South Australia and Victoria, but also right up to New South Wales. The transmission grid between those states is now pretty much at its limit. It is getting harder and harder to connect new renewable energy projects. Uh, as a result of that, the new re renewable energy projects are finding it harder to get to financial close. So this comes to something that I've been trying to, you know, an understanding I've been trying to, to grow over a few years, which is that this is a non-linear process. Um, it, it doesn't just improve in a straight line and we keep going to the end point. It gets, it gets um, harder uh, on a curve as we go forward. And that's what we're starting to experience now in Australia. We've made it this far, but now it's getting awfully hard. Now, the prices have come down a little. The wholesale prices have come down a little, and the, the, the cheap renewable energy has been a partial driver of that. However, the concerns in system security have been high, kind of at crisis point, and are still very, very high. And our ability to keep connecting and adding more is now seriously constrained. And so we're, we're hitting a point here where maybe we'll break through it um, and we'll accelerate through it again. I have a feeling we're going we're gonna to go through much more of a grind now to get that done. And there's no model out there for doing it. That's the other thing. I mean, we can't look at uh, anywhere in the world that says, oh, yeah, you can do this. You, you can succeed. Look at, at over here who did it. No, we don't know that yet. So no matter how I loop this around, it all comes back to a level of effort required that is no easier, possibly much, much harder than the level of effort that will be required to set up a right-sized, common-sense, fit-for-purpose nuclear power sector to help us get the job done. There is no easy way to transitioning a country like Australia off fossil fuels. It's going to be hard. It's going to take 20, 30, 40 years, and we should be using all of the technologies available to get it done. Yeah, the fact that there is that import-export margin from South Australia to the larger grid that has dispatchable fossil source energy, like that, that shows that there's actually a limitation of scaling at play. And uh, you mentioned how you can't really get the uh, intermittent renewable share past a certain percentage, so the curve gets harder. I, I refer to that as grid saturation, meaning you know, at the point where a sunny and windy day is providing more energy than you need, um, once you get a grid to that point, it's, it's, there's still going to be a very large share of the annual energy use that's still going to be coming from uh, firm sources that are dispatchable. And m more times than not, that's a fossil fuel source. So there are um, absolutely. And, you know, when you, when you start um, eating out um, those sections of the market, you know, naturally you're, you're impacting the, the profitability of any, every other generator that needs to stick around. Yeah. Now, that, that's okay for a period of time, but eventually it gets to the point where they leave. And so we've incurred a couple of those shocks now in, in uh, Australia where you know, a couple of those coal-fired power stations have now shut down. And, you know, that's, again, it's not a nice, gentle, straight-line curve. All of a sudden, a 1,000 megawatts departs. Um, that's happened a couple of times. It's slated to happen a couple more times in a few years, and that's creating real concern. Um, because we look at this, the, the state of uh, the grid now, 
and we look at then these big drop-offs that might come up and go, okay, that's re- that's really going to be uncomfortable. And, and as you say, you know, you can keep adding wind and solar, but you'll be adding correlated supply. You'll be um, adding to that saturation. You, you right. will start experiencing more and more negative prices, which is absolutely happening in the Australian market more and more. Uh, negative prices and oversupply. Um, the uh, the next step apparently is to start adding lots and lots of grid storage. Well, again, I find that a, a little difficult to to get on board with in that paradigm because you're needing to build enough storage just to accommodate those intermittent periods of massive oversupply. Whereas storage in its own right um, can be a really useful optimizing device. Um, if you have lots of different energy sources that are low marginal cost and low environmental impact, then you can use um, storage in a, in a smart way. Uh, but this, um, this road we're on at the moment, Colby, it, it, it seems like um, keep breaking it and then do the next fix and then break it again and find the next fix. And I'm not sure that's going to keep serving us too much longer. Uh, it's uh, this this incremental break and repair um, seems like a like a really low low probability of success to me. Yeah, and I you know one one thing I do uh, is I model grids and look at roadmaps and see you know what's needed. And um, with one example, I get hit with a lot is the Horndale Power Reserve, and people love sharing those articles with the headlines saying you know hey this new Tesla battery in Australia is saving cu- customers millions already. And they think, oh, well, that means that batteries make money. Therefore, we can build more of them and they'll make just as much money or save just as much money. But they don't realize that's for ancillary services and frequency regulations. And there's, uh, you know, some some is, you know, uh, load shifting. They'll, they'll get some revenue from using some of that for load shifting. But that's not going to get you out of, a you know, two weeks of low wind and sun. And a lot of times solar and wind is follows intermittency that's seasonal so you get a few months <laughs> oh it, it absolutely does so yeah let's let's set the record straight here so let's start with the positive so the the hornstyle power reserve in south australia has been an excellent provider of uh, frequency control and ancillary services so yeah much better than a gas plant <laughs> absolutely so we should all now be looking at large batteries and understanding that there's um there's an assistive device there for providing frequency control which is which is really terrific yeah that's great you know, let's let's use all the technology at our disposal. Let's remember a couple of other things, though. Um, there was never a problem with frequency control and ancillary services. <laughs> okay, that that wasn't a problem. I mean, just because the battery can respond virtually instantaneously, and it was taking other providers some tenths of a second, which looks in comparison slow, but is not slow. Uh, let's remember that was not a problem. It only became a problem when the frequency control and ancillary services started departing the market along with those thermal generators because we'd never been valuing what they had been doing in the first place. A bit Stable like dynamo. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. A bit like clean energy from nuclear power. It was there all along uh, and no one noticed it until it left. So you know, one reason that the Hornsdale Power Reserve has, has been A, economically successful for itself and then B, has improved relatively speaking, the situation for Australian consumers is that the prices of frequency control and ancillary services were going up and up and up. So that's what I mean by the constant sort of break and repair cycle. 
And then the whole the whole model of using storage to overcome the variability on um, wind and solar is an arbitrage model, right? It's, it's based on a yeah. broken market where you've got wildly swinging prices between super negative where you're getting paid to charge and super high where prices are, are five, six, ten, fifteen thousand dollars a megawatt hour in, in certain um, market closing intervals. So yeah, let's use all the te- technologies at our disposal. Is there a role for batteries on the grid? Yeah, absolutely there is. And in fact, in some in some places, we might be better placed to put, to put in a large battery than we would be to expand a transmission line. Yeah, it could be a really good solution um, that should be looked at in terms of, you know, is this a potential substitute for transmission? For transmission? Um, or is it a complement for transmission? You know, how can these technologies work together to give us the, the result that we need? But are... Is the advent of these large grid-connected batteries the proof that a variable renewable energy-driven supply for a developed nation is now feasible, affordable, workable, proven, and demonstrated? No, it absolutely is not. And the Hornsdale Power Reserve is not doing that in Australia. It does not provide uh, volume electricity in that way at all. It's, It's just That's just not what it does. Yeah, and speaking of big batteries on the Australian grid, there's another mega project under underway right now called Snowy 2.0. And for our listeners not familiar with this, it's basically this massive uh, pumped hydro project um, that's stated to have a 350 gigawatt hour storage capacity with a two gigawatt power capacity. Um, and it's it's absolutely massive. It's bigger than anything has ever been done in the world as far as pumped hydro is concerned. Um, and I, I've always been curious, you know, I'm not from Australia, but I'm looking at the numbers of this thing and, you know, ha, do, do locals know about this? Is, are, is there opposition to it? Is there support? Um, so what are your thoughts on it? Yeah, well, look, it, it's funny you should say that. So the snowy project, Australians, we're a funny bunch, mate. So we, we know we're a little bit, we're a bit little and we're down the other end of the world, you know, from, from where, you know, the English speaking people came from, et cetera, et cetera. So we have a bit of an inferiority complex from time to time. So we like to tell ourselves interesting stories about ourselves. One of our big stories about ourselves is the Snowy Hydro Project. So back in the 1950s or 60s, I can't remember, but it was a a massive post-war engineering infrastructure project in Australia to build um, hydroelectric system in the Snowy Mountains of New South Wales. Um, And uh, all mockery aside, it's uh, the existing... um, Snowy Hydro facility is an impressive engineering feat uh, that, that exists in Australia, uh, where we have made lakes, we have made tunnels, uh, and and we do hydro. Um, that's all relatively constrained in Australia because Australia, being such an old geologically old piece of uh, of the earth, uh, means it's also very flat and it's also very dry. So you know, there are some limits to what we're ever going to be able to do with hydroelectricity. Uh, but now we're looking to do Snowy 2.0, which is, as you've described, a major, major upgrade to the pump hydro um, facilities uh, in Australia. Uh, and what do we think about it? Do we know about it? Yes, everyone knows about it. Um, what's the feeling about it? Wow. Um, really mixed, really, really mixed sentiment. And um, for me, reading a lot of the commentary, which I've largely stayed out of, it seems like a real, ep- um, a, a real uh, episode of cognitive dissonance happening in the sort of Australian energy commentary. So, you know, it's renewable energy, right? So this 
this is meant to be what you know the future um and you know in all of the, the the plans studies around the world you know they all include hydro and they all include pumped hydro and so you would think okay renewable energy gigantic pumped hydro how can anyone not be in favor of that well there are some ways it turns out um when you read a lot of the commentary what what you find and you notice is that a lot of people seem to be very upset because it is effectively reinforcing a very large centralized model of power generation. So you've described, you've described the scale there, Colby, right? It's, it's big, right? Yeah. What, so if, if the paradigm you've been working from is that this is actually about sort of um, smash the system, um, the end of centralized power generation, the end of large power generation, we're going to distribute, we're going to democratize, um, we're going to uh, break this down and break this apart uh, and look at how terrific wind and solar is for that. Um, and then suddenly you see something of that scale happening. It doesn't actually fit the paradigm all that well. And so I'm seeing a, a, a big bit of dissonance there. And part of that dissonance is that if you were to build that in um, New South Wales, economically speaking and in terms of the function of the market, it would, for a period of time in front of it, it would probably reinforce the role of the existing black coal generation in New South Wales and Queensland, which is geographically nearby. It's a low marginal cost producer and coal-fired power electricity pushes water up a hill just as nicely as um, wind and solar-powered electricity. Arguably more reliably too. Yeah, absolutely. And this is a point I was making earlier about building storage capacity. If you've built... Um, x gigawatt of capacity you'd like to use that for as many hours as possible um you don't just want to use it occasionally so you know if we're having a free market here that means that that facility is going to be just as accessible to um, the coal-fired generators and it might reinforce their business case in australia for, for several years well imagine trying to reconcile that in your head um if you if you think you're pro renewables uh and then it also sort of leads to the suggestion from a lot of people that no, when we said pumped hydro, what we meant was distributed pumped hydro. So we see a network of pumped hydro all over the country of little, uh, smaller distributed pumped hydro right next door to the wind and solar um, facilities. Now, I said before, I work at a systems engineering and technology company um, during the week and it, it, there is nothing easy about delivering hundreds of, of fundamentally bespoke civil engineering projects. Um, every one of them is going to be hard in their own way and, and getting hundreds of them done is going to be even harder and every one of them will have their own challenges with the bank to get finance. And when we look at, across the Australian scene at, you know, how's that going with the distributed pumped hydro? It's going really, really slowly. And the first few sites that people are trying to exploit are sites that already have um, partial infrastructure in place, you know, an old gold mine that already has an upper and a lower lake, you know, in a sunny part of Queensland. It's a dream, you know, as far as a, a distributed pumped um, hydro storage site. It's fantastic, right? Um, has it made financial close? No, not yet. Um, so this is, this is all very conflicted in the, in the Australian energy conversation right now. And, you know, I, I feel comfortable sitting where I sit because I see storage as it's just a tool. It's just a tool yeah. to optimize the grid that you're building around it. And if you took that uh, black coal out of New South Wales and you replaced it with nuclear power, as well as continuing to build out the wind and solar power, well, they could all utilize 
um, whatever storage is available on the grid in an optimized fashion, the storage would be running at high utilization. So we'd be getting the best return on the capital that we spent on building the storage. All the generators would be low marginal um, environmental cost and low marginal financial cost. That surely is the goal. So you know, will Snowy 2.0 get built? Yes, I think it probably will. It's going to be a big effort though, because it is a very, very big project. Yeah, I know it involves a 27-kilometer underground conduit and uh, <laughs> covers a lot of land. Um, and, and just for our listeners to know, uh, 350 gigawatt hours, it's, it's, it sounds huge. It is huge for a pumped hydro station, but that still only equals about 12 hours uh, average on the Australian grid. So it's... Uh, That's so you know you're not going to get you're not going to get weekly or seasonal um, results in terms exactly. of, of building <laughs> that, and we would know that we need it. And um, you know, at the risk of um, having a virtually a cliched conversation presently, we can see what happened in um, Texas and the south of the United States in terms of well, what is a worst case scenario in terms of a gap? Indeed, um, you know, the, the worst case scenario is a pretty big. Yeah, for sure, it would be a big project. You know, and many renewable-only advocates point to that project, and there are many problematic reports from various universities and interest groups presenting themselves as roadmaps to 100% renewable energy, which eventually influence government policy and can cause drastically harmful consequences. Do you feel it is important for pro-nuclear NGOs to not only expose the bad methods of these reports, but also present nuclear-focused roadmaps that use the same methods in demonstrating feasibility? Short answer, yes, absolutely I do. Um, and, and there's a lot of work in doing that. I mean, I, you know, come with my bright new world hat on, I am, I am envious of the endless pots of money that seem to be available to write these renewable energy only uh, roadmaps. Um, you, you guys may or may not know, and the audience may or may not know, some years ago I wrote a paper called Burden of Proof, which has gone on to be a fairly highly cited um, um, paper in the energy literature. I cite where, that all the time, actually. <laughs> oh, that's not Thanks, Colby. Um, where, where we tried to scoop up um, what was out there in the literature as um, these 100% renewable uh, roadmaps and try to put them through a screening process for, for feasibility. And... Um, a big part of my motivation for doing that was that there was a um, the body of literature was being presented as an existing body of literature that is internally consistent that's that's all coming to the same conclusion that this is really doable, uh, and that isn't the case. Um, all of the papers had had really serious problems and limitations in them. Some of them are almost comically so. Yeah, <laughs> and. Though it was also in, internally a very, very inconsistent body of literature. Um, some are using biomass. Some are saying biomass is um, unacceptable and unsustainable. Uh, some are making enormous uh, assumptions about hydroelectricity, where others are saying, no, we, we're going to need to use less hydroelectricity. Some of the assumptions on the transition that would happen first in the way we use energy in terms of one-third reductions. Oh, absolutely. Heroic assumptions, um, both, in, both in the quantity but also in the underlying systematic change that would be required to get that quantity. Yeah. So the dependencies written through them all um, are um, quite, 
quite horrible. And so I was stunned to see this come up again just a few days ago with um, uh, an Australian scientist called Andrew Blakers, who is has sort of is the parent of this distributed pumped hydro model uh, in Australia. Um, Mark Jacobson, um, Brad Van Matheson, and several others um, putting this forward again in 2021. And I felt like, oh my God, have I just like had a fever dream where like the last 10 years didn't happen and like they're just talking about this again? I was, I was really amazed. And we do need to point out um, what's real and what's fake in the work that's being done there. We do need to, to bring forward something that's better. And the enormous advantage that you have of, of not being just 100% renewables is you've got more tools in your toolbox. You're going to come up with something that's more effective and more feasible and easier to optimise and far more believable. Um, there's a certain, uh, I don't, don't know about you guys, but even if you're not sort of an energy modeler like Holby or someone who's got the background in it like I do, cer certain citizens actually get a bit of an, a fairly accurate idea of whether they're being sold something that's plausible or implausible. Do you get yeah. that, that sort of feeling? And, you know, I've had that here in Australia, particularly with some of the, um, the unions that support the coal mining and the coal-fired power generation regions in Australia. And they get told that, oh, no, you've got a great jobs future under this paradigm. And they kind of look at it and go, I'm pretty sure we don't. I, I don't think this is actually deliverable and I don't think there's any place uh, for, for me and, uh, and my people and my skills in this plan you're putting forward. And, and they're really open to and really wanting an alternative plan. So, yeah, my, getting much more on the front foot of that is, is important. But, you know, wouldn't it be nice if this didn't need to be an industry-led push? It should just be the way it gets done. You know, institutes should be technologically neutral. Um, mm. uh, Organisations should be technologically neutral. The IPCC, the IEA, they should all just be looking for the correct optimised solution here. It's actually, it, it becomes difficult when it looks like it's a, a deliberate effort to push back in a direction to include nuclear. People start to talk about that as pro-nuclear. That's actually, it's actually really, really challenging. But unfortunately, um, you know, if you go 100% renewables, you, you, you're treated with a, with a beautiful green halo. So, yeah, it's, it's a very, very difficult space, but I'm, I'm more comfortable here than I was because, you know, this conversation has been had for over a decade now. There's been plan after plan after plan after plan, and they all come to very, very little. I mean, even in just 10 years in Australia, we've been through um, solar thermal with molten salt storage is going to run Australia. Um, we've been through uh, wind and solar are going to run Australia. We've been through wind and solar with dist distributed pumped hydro storage is going to run Australia. Um, and now we're talking about uh, solar power, from the north of Australia through a cable is going to run Singapore. Oh, I've heard of that oh, one. Yeah. That one was was amazing. <laughs> kind of faulty. What yeah, do you see? Yeah. Like, how do you feel when you see constant? Because I mean, yeah, sure. Maybe in like the the fossil fuel unions and stuff, they are skeptical of you know wind and solar and its efficacy. But what I see is I see a lot of activists believing the you know, idea that, you know, nuclear is not only not needed, but it's actually detrimental to the climate. And I see uh, people, especially like Jacobson at Stanford, constantly saying that it's just like, 
useless. And there's, you know, there is, I think there was a recent article in Nature with a lot of the renewable scientists. And I don't know what I'm trying to say here. No, I, I know exactly. I know exactly what you're trying to say. I'm watching it too. I, I'll say something positive about that, Phil. I, I think that's on its way out. I really do. I don't think that there's much generational renewal in that um, position, to be perfectly honest. I think that if we really look across the arc of change on these issues, it's changing and the momentum behind that change is building pretty strongly where you, you can't really cling to such demonstrably false statements too much longer. Or, or some people can, but they're not going to have a lot of currency in serious conversations for too much longer. I think at the moment what we're seeing is what I kind of call a, a dead cat bounce. I don't know if you guys are familiar with that expression, but um, you know, it looks like the cat's alive. It's just bounced. Um, you know, and and I think that that's happening presently and it might happen for, for a few more years. We might just see a, a little bit of an uptick of that now, but gee, it's really having to start to work hard as more and more global institutions are coming around to a much more straightforward position on that you see the seeds of a, of a change in position in the, in the United States Democratic Party, for example, in, in how it is sort of treating and approaching this. Heaven knows not as much as, as we might like to see, but, but it's there. As you see more and more nations including it in their strategies, as you see the nations that have made net zero carbon commitments, they've got nuclear centrally in those plans. I think that that is now in its in its um, sort of last iteration. And hopefully some of these environmental activist groups will start abandoning the nuclear is not needed trope too, you know? I don't know what their future is. I, I really don't know what their future is on, on, on that point. It is such a point of identity um, for these organizations. You know, in, in starting an NGO, naturally I did a little bit of research about, well, where do NGOs come from and what are they all about? And most of the big names that we know today, um, Greenpeace, Friends of the Earth, World Wildlife Fund, um, they were all born around about the same time, about the end of the 1960s and the early 1970s. And you know what the big issue was at, in, at, at that point in time? Population growth. Yeah, first chapter in their platform uh, was about population. Second chapter was energy. That's right. So these organizations were founded at the point where the prevailing environmental concern was that the rate of population growth was frighteningly high. What they didn't know at the time when they were forming them is that they were at the peak of it. So the, the rate of global right. population growth started declining at virtually the same time as these organizations were formed. So they were formed from a, from a position of crisis and identity that is, is now really quite redundant. You know, we, we would all find the challenge easier with fewer people, but that that particular issue is fundamentally solved. We don't know where the final number is going to land, but the trajectory is, is set. And the challenge now is to provide enough clean energy for people. Climate change wasn't even on the agenda when those organisations were formed. So how, right. how the major organisations overcome that conflict of identity in the next 10, 15, 20 years I, I don't I don't know. And I think what we're probably going to see is a swelling in the middle ground. I think we're going to see a growth in output and a growth in position for the medium-sized um, NGOs. They will they are not going to be the globally known brand names. 
um, but they're going to be organisations that actually make a significant contribution in their own jurisdiction. And I think of organisations like uh, a Clean Air Task Force in the United States, for example. You know, it's not it's not a globally recognised name, but gee, they do good work. You know, and they know what they know what they're talking about on the subject. Whereas the um, the majors on that topic, I, I, f- I think they're going to start to feel the pinch of irrelevance on that, and they're going to start to start to suffer from it. I think young people are catching on to it too. Uh, it's a uh, it's an it's an interesting generational, like you say, identity thing. So, yeah, it absolutely is, and it helps because like nuclear technologies, and particularly the um, SMRs that are being designed, and some of the new companies that are designing them, they're really appealing. Like they're cool, you know. <laughs> yeah, they're beautiful. <laughs> They're, they're beautiful. They do amazing work. There'll be things that we can get up close to. There are going to be things that we can really um, embed in in communities and towns and industries. They're clean and they make power all day long. And they're some of the best jobs going around in in science and technology. Like there's a lot of appeal in that. So it it's a, going to be a very difficult sell to try to tell a new generation of people that, that those technologies are wrong and and shouldn't yeah. be at the same time as telling them that, that climate change is the major crisis they've got to think about. I just think more and more young people are going to take a sniff of that and go, nah, I don't think I don't think I want any. Thanks very much. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, <laughs> hey, hey, we've been talking for a while here, and I know your time is valuable. Um, so, But, yeah, if, uh, if people want to learn more about you, your work, and Bright New World, uh, where, where should they go? Well, if anyone would be uh, encouraged by me to please visit brightnewworld.org, that is our home. You'll find some of our articles there where we're writing. Um, you can join up and become a subscriber. We we welcome every and, and any subscriber into our fold. Um, we are taking new memberships and we're having an annual general meeting in the next couple of months. So if you'd like to join the community, there will be some invitations coming out soon for, uh, for sitting in and hearing about our annual report, hearing from the board and hearing about our directions coming up. So that is from brightnewworld.org. You'll find me on Twitter. Uh, I am at BNW underscore Ben, and I'm fairly active in that space. Um, but, you know, we we are based here in Australia, and this is where we're working, but we really strive to be part of a global effort in that NGO space. Sorry, what was that Twitter handle again? That is uh, BNW, capital BNW for Bright New World, underscore uh, Ben. That's Got how you on, on Twitter. Uh, so we strive to be part of an active global community in that pro-nuclear NGO space. So you'll see us interacting with um, co-signing and working together with like-minded organisations around the world. We, we have a strong conviction that's ha- that that's how we get things done. We're a collaborative organisation, so we welcome members and supporters from all over the world. So come and find us at brightnewworld.org. Well, well, thanks so much for coming on. This was an awesome discussion. We covered a lot of stuff. That's been a real pleasure. They were um, really well-formed questions. It's, it's nice to be able to get into a little bit of the nuance and, and detail about some of the things that, that are happening um, where I'm from that are really relevant to, to the challenges elsewhere in the world. So I appreciate the opportunity. Thanks for the chat. Thank you. It was a great chat. All right. Well, we'll uh, hopefully talk to you some other time. Looking forward to it. Thanks, guys. Well, that was a lot of fun. I was thrilled to talk to one of the superstars of nuclear advocacy, and I admire Ben and his work. He is just a wealth of knowledge and insight when it comes to sustainable energy systems. For sure. 
Ben is also very skilled in communication. He is great at making a case for nuclear power and has the ability to connect with people by conveying a positive message with compelling research. Phil, what stood out the most to you about this conversation? Yeah, what I appreciate the most was the advice he gave us on how to get nuclear power more politically and socially accepted here in the United States. Basically, we have to stop taking the continued existence of nuclear power for granted in this country and fight like hell to keep reactors running for climate reasons. Lots of us are needed to continually speak up for clean energy like nuclear and show people the incredible environmental and societal benefits of the technology. When it comes down to it, nuclear power is as valid as renewable energy, if not more effective. Its carbon-free energy benefits just need to be valued in society and the economy. It will take many dedicated pro-nuclear individuals to start the conversation to change public perception of nuclear power. This is not an easy path, and we need to put in the work and continually spread the word. How about you, Colby? What part of the discussion with Ben did you find most useful? Well, I was happy to get into the unique characteristics of the Australian grid because it can serve as a case example for how grids function. South Australia, which only represents a small fraction of the Australian grid, is often touted as an example of how renewables can scale. But in reality, that region is still fossil fuel dependent and shares a big import-export margin with neighboring fossil fuel-dominated grids. The storage arguments can also be put to the test as the Hornsdale Power Reserve is only a success due to low penetration and the revenues from the ancillary services it provides, rather than scalable firming for wind and solar intermittency. Snowy 2.0 is a massive pumped hydro project that still won't be able to sufficiently provide firming for the Australian grid due to its limited power capacity of 2 gigawatts. I was excited to talk to Ben about grid modeling and energy policy because it overlaps so much with the work I do. Definitely. Pretty much everything we hear from Ben and his organization Bright New World is awesome stuff. We wish everyone at Bright New World success with their efforts in Australia and around the world. For sure. We appreciate our conversation with Dr. Ben Hurd. We want to thank him again for his valuable time to speak with us today. This has been Legalizing Nuclear Power. Thanks for tuning in. If you like what you heard and want more content, you can support Americans for Nuclear Energy's Climate Fix podcast on a per episode basis with Patreon, link in the description. To support Americans for Nuclear Energy and our general mission, visit our website at www.americansfornuclearenergy.org. All words, again, that's www.americansfornuclearenergy.org. We have a link to donate with PayPal under the Mobilize page. You can also purchase some Americans for Nuclear Energy swag under our store page. This will really help us pay for the little things, especially online service fees, to keep our organization running. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Tumblr, and YouTube. Lastly, we really want your feedback. Let us know your thoughts, questions, and concerns. We have a message form on our website under the About section. Or you can email us directly at main at americansfornuclearenergy.org. All words. Again, that's Maine at americansfornuclearenergy.org. Thanks for tuning into this episode of Americans for Nuclear Energy's Climate Fix podcast. We'll see you next time. Edited and produced by Jonna Adams.